Well, we do want to be praying for those that if anybody shows up at the benediction, just, you know, just welcome them on in and tell them you're glad to have them at the time, whatever time that they arrive. Don't make them feel bad. Have you ever, have you ever missed the, the time change at your house? Did, I've done that as a pastor. That was not very fun. <laughs> I, tell you, I went breezing in at the 8.30 service. Oh, about the sermon time, you know. <laughs> just, oh, it was bad. It was bad. But they were forgiving. And we want to be praying for those folks that are on the road for spring break this week. We have lots of folks traveling. We have so many young families in this congregation with school kids, and they are all enjoying this the opportunity to be away this week. So um, let's, let's give them our prayers as well. Well, carrying a newspaper, a street bum and made his way onto the subway in New York. And there was a, there was a Catholic priest that was sitting on the subway. And by the way, I am going to get to that scripture passage in just a minute, so just bear with me. But as a uh, as the, the man made his way into the subway, the priest was watching him and noticed he was kind of shuffling along. His walk was a little unsteady, and um, so he kind of wondered what was up. But the uh, fellow comes walking up to the priest, and he says, uh, you know, I, I wonder if you could tell me, um, do you know what causes rheumatoid arthritis? Well, uh, the priest thought that he had a great opportunity. You know, he was looking at the fella, and he says, well, it's caused by um, too much alcohol, downright laziness, and uh, wasting away your time. And the fella held out his newspaper, and he says, I am so sorry to hear that. It says here that the Pope has rheumatoid arthritis. I, I hate to see that happen. Mm. You know, so many of us uh, are worried about our sinfulness. But I think the Catholics have something about this whole idea of confession. Um, have, you ever, have you ever been to confession, any of you, just, just out of curiosity, you know, maybe grow up Catholic? Well, I, I think it's a great concept, you know, because you have this opportunity to go and bear your soul. You have the opportunity to go and kind of lay out your sins for the one that you're confessing to. I think there, there's, a, there's a, some, some real merit in this idea and practice of confession. Because when you go and you offer your confession, you lay things out to somebody else, and there's this cleansing effect that happens. You have the opportunity to unload so much that you carry around. And you know, when you're carrying around your sins, they just kind of are like a burden on your shoulders or a weight on your back. And when you go and confess, even if it's in a little wooden confessional booth, there's that sense of being able to unburden yourself and just to lay those things at the feet of God. We do that when we come to the altar rail many times. But to go in a confessional booth and to share those sorts of things with a confessor, a priest, that must be uh, a really neat kind of thing, an opportunity to unweight ourselves. But I've thought about that as someone who would be confessing but I'd never really thought about it much in terms of the person who is the confessor or the confessee. I'm not really sure what it, what it is. Uh, the person who sits in the booth and hears the confessions of the people who come in. 
You know, I, can you imagine just sitting there and hearing people confess their sins, all the different things that they've done in their lives, all the things that they wish they, they had done that they had not done, the people that they talk about and, and all of the things that they talk about. I can just imagine what that might feel like. It, it would be a real emotional roller coaster. I would think I'd have a hard time sitting there and listening to to people talk about all those bad things that they had done. You know, I can imagine. Then I would be thinking to my, grumbling to myself even, uh, I can't believe that they did that, you know. Or that, how could they do that to their mother? Or how could they do that to their brother or their sister? I'd be thinking these things. And I'd be ready to mete out that penance, you know. You can just imagine what you'd want to make somebody do. And you just told you they'd done something despicable to somebody else. Well, here, this will fix you. I'll fix that here. Just take this little bit of penance, you know. And maybe you'd even know things about the people who came and confessed, and, and you'd be sort of like that Santa Claus in the confessional booth, you know, checking your list, uh, making your list and checking it twice and saying, I'll really get them this time. It'd have to be hard to sit there in that confessional booth and mete out that kind of penance to people without doing so in a sense of, uh, oh, in a sense of retribution, you know? But we don't like to confess, do we? We really don't like to confess. Because when we confess, we admit that we're fallen creatures. Many of you were here on Ash Wednesday, and uh, you shared in the imposition of ashes. And what Ash Wednesday is, it is, it is a reminder to us that we are fallen, that we are creatures of flesh and blood. From earth we come to earth we return. From ashes we come to ashes we return. Now, I like a fire in the fireplace. But, you know, whenever I have a fire in the fireplace in the winter, after a few days, after a few fires, you know, you've got to get in there and you've got to shovel the ashes out and put them in the bucket and get them out onto the street somehow. And Whenever ashes are involved, I don't think it means that anything very much fun is going on. When we come to Ash Wednesday, we're talking about our fallenness. When preachers are talking about ashes to ashes and dust to dust, it's not a happy time in our lives because we've lost somebody. When we talk about the ashes in our lives, generally it's not at a time when we remember it fondly or it's not a very happy time in our lives. If you're ever getting ashes and switches for Christmas, it's never been a very happy time. You know, my grandmother was four years old, and her family actually gave her ashes and switches. <laughs> oh, she'd been bad. I couldn't believe they did that. But it wasn't a fun time. You know, we look at Ash Wednesday, but we'd much rather uh, we would much prefer to just jump on over to Easter and skip over all of this uh, fallenness part. Skip over all of the sinfulness in our lives and just skip from the ashes straight to the lilies. 
we'd just as soon skip over all this talk about what we've done, what we haven't done, how bad we are, taking on the guilt, bearing the burden, and being weighed down by it. We'd just as soon jump straight to the lilies and forget about the ashes. It's because we look at the resurrected Jesus and we want to be like the resurrected Jesus. We just not uh, just as soon not deal with the death part of it. We just as soon not deal with the sinfulness of it. We just like to go on to resurrection. And that's one of the hard things about life is because life is not like that. Life doesn't work that way. You can't get to the resurrection without first going through the ashes, without first going through the cross. We'll get to the Easter lilies, but first we have to go through the ashes. We have to face our brokenness. If you look at the passage for today, it's in the fifth chapter of Romans, beginning with the 12th verse. Paul expresses our brokenness in uh, what I think is a very balanced sort of way. He gives it to us like this. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death came through sin, and so death spread to all because all have sinned, sin was indeed in the world before the law. But sin is not reckoned when there is no law. Yet death exercised dominion from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sins were not like the transgression of Adam, who is a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if the many died through the one man's trespass, much more surely have the grace of God and the free gift in the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for the many. And the free gift is not like the effect of the one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brings justification. If, because of the one man's trespass, death exercised dominion through that one, much more surely will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness exercise dominion in life through the one man, Jesus. Therefore, just as one man's trespass led to condemnation for all, so one man's act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all. For just as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Now, there were a lot of heavy sentences in, in there, I realize. But basically, it comes down to this. And, and I want to cross-reference over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 and 2, where I think Paul states it a little more simply for us, where it says, For since death came through a man... The resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For is, as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. That's much more simply put. But it means the same thing. 
in the background stands Adam. And we heard the passage about it this morning. Now, granted, Paul doesn't seem to know very much about Eve and the serpent. It all comes down to Adam as far as Paul is concerned. In the background, though, stands Adam. Poor, embarrassed, ashamed Adam, whose story we've heard. It's not that Adam wanted to mess things up. It was just in him to do so. Adam, Adam was the one who fell, sure. But in Christ, all will be made alive, says Paul. Uh, if you'd like, you can take a look at the RLV version of this. That's the revised limerick version, which goes like this. God's plan made a hopeful beginning, but Adam spoiled his chances by sinning. We trust that his story will end in God's glory, but at present the other side's winning. <laughs> I kind of like that. We don't, we don't like the pessimistic sound of that. But we don't like Adam, but we must confess to be like him. We want the lilies in our lives, but we're stuck with the ashes because there's so much of Adam in us. There are two key theological concepts at work here. One is fallenness, and the other is redemption. And Paul is simply saying to us, like we get in that 1 Corinthians 15 verses, as in Adam all die, so in Christ we'll all be made alive. There's just something about that uh, fallenness that is in each one of us. And we look to the story of the fall from the Garden of Eden as to why. But it is just simply something that is within all of us. And we, re we need the redemption of Christ that Paul describes. You see, Adam's sin becomes our sin. If you look back in the Old Testament, there's a parallel story. There was a man named Achan who, after the conquest of the city of Jericho, and they took all the spoils and the treasures of the city, Achan withheld some of the treasure for himself. And when that was discovered, uh, well, it, it wasn't discovered at first, but then the Israelite people decided that now was the time for them to go and conquer the, the Amorite city of Ai, spelled A-I. As they went, they decided they didn't need but uh, just a certain number of soldiers. I think it was 3,000. But they were routed by the Amorites. And they didn't realize at first what had going on, but then, then it was discovered that Achan had taken some of the treasure and they decided it was Achan's fault. So he was stoned. And he realized, and the, the people realized that his sin had been connected to all of the people. Achan's sin became their sin. Well, in much the same way, that's how we look at Adam. His sin becomes our sin. I think I've shared with you before, but one of my experiences in seminary was to see a movie about um, the liberation of the concentration camps in Germany 
following World War II. It was in French, but it had English subtitles. All we could do was read along as, as the, the French person talked. But what it did was it, um, it didn't show so much the prisoners and all, but it, in one place, took you from room to room to room to room. And in the first place, there were suitcases, empty suitcases, piles upon piles of suitcases. And in the next room, there were shoes, piles upon piles of shoes. And then in the next room, and this was what was so disturbing to us, were piles and piles and piles of human hair. And it was at that point in that movie called Night and Fog, as I remember, that I felt so violated by what had been done to these people. I just thought to myself, much like I would have done in the confessional booth, how could somebody do this sort of thing? How could somebody wreak that sort of hate on another human being? We went into discussion groups following the, watching the movie. And, um, and I began to share just kind of what I was feeling and the emotion that just was working inside of me. And the discussion group leader said, wait a minute. Why is it that you so easily identify with the victim? Why is it that you don't identify with the perpetrator? And I began to understand what original sin was. Why is it when we see something like it, why is it that we so easily identify with the victims, but we fail to see our connectedness with the perpetrator? It is in us. The perpetrator's sin is also our sin. Jesus offers us the opportunity of relationship with the Father, but the Adam in us keeps coming out. We don't mean to be self-consumed. We generally think of ourselves as good people, and we don't mean to be self-consumed, but it's in us. We think of ourselves as good people, and we don't mean to be greedy, but it's in us. We don't mean to be manipulative, but it's in us. We don't mean to be hateful, but time to time it's in us. We don't mean to be discouraged or discouraging of other people, but it's in us. It's just in us to be that way. We don't want to be Adam, but we are. Having played competitive tennis for 25 years, I did up to a point, and then watching 20 years of competitive junior and now college tennis, um, we've seen all sorts of tennis players kind of come through the ranks. Uh, Janice knows all about this with her oh, nationally ranked granddaughters. Well, as, uh, 
As we have watched tennis develop over the years, we've seen lots of players. We've seen some very fine tennis players, high school champions that we've been a part of, had one in our family. We've known very well an NCAA champion, you know, from here in the Jackson area that one of ours used to work out with. Some very fine tennis players, high-quality tennis that we've seen play. But we've seen all sorts of types of players. And from time to time, as we've gone from place to place, we've had experiences with really fine tennis players who were really fine people on the court. But we've also experienced those tennis players who, while their games might have been fine, they became nasty on the court. And there's just something about that in that kind of competitive environment, in that, uh, in that kind of environment when kids want to do well, there's just so much of that atom that seems to come out. And from time to time, you'll run across that player that cheats, and you'll run across that player that just simply treats other people nastily, and you'll run across that player who you just don't want to be around at any other time. And then they get to the college recruiting process. And the coaches know the players. They know how they play. But they also know the kind of people that they are. And some of these kids who have developed national caliber tennis games can't find a place to go to college because they have to pay the price of having Adam inside it's just in us to be that way we don't want to be Adam but we are and these things leave us thinking like the woman at the well when we realize how fallen that we are when we realize how broken that we are we realize that we thirst you know, and I'll not belabor the fact that we often look in all the wrong places for what Jesus alone can give, that living water. We'll try money, we'll po try power, popularity, status, good works, superiority, anything but what Jesus can give, what this one man can give. Have you ever gone a long time without a bath? Or have you ever gone a long time with having any water at your disposal? Some of you have probably been in some of those circumstances out on the trail, Rayford. Perhaps you've been uh, hiking the trail for a week at a time. Perhaps you've been with the Boy Scouts out to Philmont Scout Ranch and been out on the trail with them for a week at a time, climbed those 14,000-foot peaks and things like that. Well, let me tell you, when you get back from a backpacking trip, to take a shower is one of the most wonderful experiences of your life. <laughs> because when you do that, just all of the dirt seems to wash away. I mean, it literally washes away. But then also, all of the exertion and the effort and the weight that you've carried on your back for a week, it just seems to wash right off, and it's the most wonderful feeling in the 
and then to take that first drink of water when you when you have that opportunity the water that comes out of a faucet to just drink that and to have your thirst quenched and to have a glass of milk oh my goodness the woman at the well was a woman who was broken and she was a woman that was fallen and when she experienced the gift of Jesus Christ it was as if the waters had washed over her and she had been cleansed again and she had found new life inside of her in such a way that she'd never found before. Maybe during a season like Lent, the best we can do is to acknowledge our dirt and to acknowledge the Adam that is in us and allow Christ's gift of wondrous love to wash over us and to take away our dirt and our filth so that we can be new and fresh again. Perhaps struggling when our, with our own imperfections will make us more thankful for the perfection in Jesus. Perhaps our own sadness will point us to Jesus' lament over the sins of the world Perhaps our griefs and our losses will take new shape as we consider God's self-giving sacrifice. Perhaps images of a crucified Savior will inspire us to greater depths of unselfishness. What wondrous love is this? It's the love that sets us free. Free from Adam's sin. Free from fallenness free from the burden, free from the guilt, free from the filth. And maybe the Adam in us will lead us to a more meaningful Lent with the end result that the cross and the empty tomb will bring a brighter fullness of glory than we have ever, ever seen. What wondrous love is this, O my soul, O my soul? What wondrous love is this, O my soul? What wondrous love is this that caused the Lord of bliss? To bear the dreadful curse for my soul, for my soul. To bear the dreadful curse for my soul. As we close our service today, we sing hymn number 364, Because He Lives. And it's because he lives that we can face tomorrow. It's because he lives that we find that our thirst is quenched. It's because he lived that we find the atom that is in us, the it that is in us, can be washed away. As we sing that this morning, maybe God's calling you to respond in some way, to say, God, just free me, wash me, cleanse me. Take all the filth out of me, and I become you, your new creature in Christ. Perhaps that's the call upon your life.
perhaps if you'd like to be a part of the St. Matthew's congregation, and it hasn't been officially that yet, we invite you to join us in the front as we stand and sing.